0: What's going on everybody and welcome back to another episode of rapping with REPUM. I'm your host Keith Burkelhamer. So on today's live stream, I welcome back Dr. Eli Meyer from AquaBiomix. Up Hi, there buddy. Eli. And a new guest, Dr. Andy Bauma, who's a science educator and hobbyist. What's going on there Andy?
1: How are you doing Keith?
0: Good to have you on, man. The, we actually met—we uh, met in person at uh, Macno, wasn't it? That was where we uh, met That's in right. person. But you're a—you're uh, a big viewer of the live stream and and a power user of Eli's uh, service. So, really psyched to have both of you guys on together. Um, just some background, more background on these guys. Eli is a coral biologist and aquarium hobbyist. And he owns Aquabiomics. Aquabiomics can analyze the microbiome of an aquarium using DNA sequencing so they can diagnose issues and identify strategies for promoting a healthy microbiome. Besides being a frequent viewer of this live stream, thank you, Andy. Andy has a PhD in zoology from the University of Wisconsin Madison and has published research on tropical ecology and science education. For the last 15 years, Andy has focused on teaching a variety of university courses in biology and conservation. Andy has kept aquariums for his whole life, but started focusing on salt order about 11 years ago. And he currently maintains several systems with a focus on Acropora and Ganiapora. So before we start chatting with these guys, I want to thank the sponsors of the live stream, both Folk Resupply and Ecotech Marina. I really appreciate these companies supporting the show. And I also appreciate all you folks out there tuning in. I see there's a whole bunch of people out there in the chat hello hello and as per usual we um, encourage questions comments and uh, yeah I want to make this as interactive as possible we do have a uh, a bit of an agenda for the uh, for the show tonight but would uh, would love to uh, see if anybody has any any interesting comments and questions out there in the chat and I will do my best to get to all that stuff um yes great bear to Paul. make sure to smash that like button and share the video yes so more people can find this live stream so eli man we've um we've had you on the live stream you know a couple of times in the past and and i know um there's some new stuff going on with Aquabiomics. did you want to kind of kick things off and give everybody an update on on what's new with the service
2: yeah that sounds great thanks for thanks for the chance it's always great to talk with you guys So yeah, I wanted to start by talking about um, some of the new information that we're including in the reports. Um, Anybody out there who's been a client of ours for a while may remember that in the early days of the service, I would painstakingly type out sometimes very long emails trying to explain to you what your results meant. Um, And over time, it became both way too labor intensive um, and it also just took too long, so it was like you were waiting too long to get that extra information. So what I've what I've done now over the last over the last say six months or so, I've built a lot of that information into the website. Um, so now you're getting when you get your report back, you're getting a cuss that will say things like you know you have this parasite. Here's a link to some more information. You have too many dinoflagellates. Here's a link to some information. And I thought we might. Um, Take a look at this. Keith, did you have a, a screen grab of a uh, tank DNA test? Let's see if it works. If not, we'll you, uh, it I got the
0: parasites that uh, that's that.
3: Yep. perfect. That's yep. the one.
2: So, um, you know, we we generally on this show have focused on the microbiome test. That is a DNA analysis of the, the bacterial community in your tank. But DNA is DNA. And so we can use DNA testing to look at other communities. We use it to look at communities, including parasites. And so this is, we're going to show here a, um, an image from a, a tank DNA test report. Um, I've anonymized it. I've taken out the identifying information. Just wanted to be able to point at this thing and, and show you some of this additional information that's included.
3: Yep. Is it? What's that? Is it showing up? Yeah, yeah, it's there. I've had it up,
0: yep.
2: OK, great. Yep. OK. Um, so I guess I, I don't see it, but I can talk through this. So this particular, this particular test report- Yeah, you're
0: not going to see it unless you're watching us on YouTube, you're not going to see it on that's fine. Let That's
2: fine, yeah. let me just pull yeah, this yeah. up because of course I sent you the files, so I do have it. <laughs> Sorry about that. I'm yeah, no. Tech savvy when it comes to DNA sequencing and terribly uh, tech illiterate with a lot of uh, Zoom and Skype and that sort of thing. Okay, so yeah, I'm looking here at the parasites table from this, this test report. And what I wanted to point out to you is that I've added some important information here on the levels and the prevalence of these these parasites. So Keith and Andy, are you guys seeing this? The Uranema yep. and Cryptocarion? Yep. And you can see the levels. I can numbers. see it. If you guys are not watching on
0: YouTube, you can't see it, but
2: <laughs> Okay. Okay, fine. I can't see so, it. So trust me, it's there. Okay, it's so there. let's let's focus in on, on ick here, because this is this is a topic of a lot of discussion. So this particular sample, this sample that I've just just stripped away the ID from, so you don't know who it is. Um, this particular sample had a low level of ick, and I, I thought it might be worth, worth pointing out information that you can extract from the report. First, let's take a look at the levels themselves, OK? The, the absolute level, 0.1% of the DNA in, in this sample um, came from ick. Now, that's a that's a pretty low level. That's, that's on the very low end of the range. Um, That means we probably found 10 or more uh, individual DNA sequences, each of which perfectly matched it. So I'm confident it was in the sample. It's too high to be some kind of a false positive. But it's really low. Look at that percentile. right? It's only the 37th percentile. So most tanks that have it have higher levels than this tank does. Gotcha. And the prevalence number over on the right, you see that as of the time that this report was generated, 13% of the tanks that we've tested have Ick. So stepping back from this, yes, this tank has Ick, but it has it at a very low level. It shares that in common with about 13% of the other tanks out there. And um, the level in this tank is lower than most of the tanks that we've ever found Ick in. Um, The other thing I want to point out here, now, in the old days, if you got ick in your test report, I would painfully type out a whole bunch of paragraphs about that and, you know, it took a lot of time, but even worse, I would often forget to include some details, right? It's a lot of stuff to type manually. Well, now, if you were to click on that marine ick link, it would take you to a web page on the Aquabiomics website with a whole bunch of details about ick. including links to other resources, including uh, links to treatment options for it. So all of that information really is now right in your report without having to wait for me to get around to write the email to
0: you. There you go. Um,
2: so that's, that's what I wanted to show you is this general philosophy. We're trying to move everything into the reports so that you get it more quickly. Um, because I can report I can produce these reports through an automated process. Um, and so Within 24 hours of getting the, the data back from the center, I can I can have that in,
3: in your account.
0: So this has got nothing to do in terms of your um, well, maybe it does have something to do in terms of the uh, the, the new functionality reports or the uh, the more um, granularity. But um, Marie-Nick, you said 13 percent of the tanks you test uh, reef tanks. I'm assuming well, maybe there are some fish only yeah. uh, tanks in that uh, sample or whatnot. But uh,
2: just, right, and I don't I don't subdivide it. It's just right. all tanks um, you know, that number.
0: And I saw Bobby uh, Miller was uh, on the uh, the live stream Humblefish, and I'm, I'm sure I asked him this question. But in, in terms of Ick, Eli, what's what's the best um, treatment plan if you got a reef tank and you got you know some visible Ick on the fish there, and your tests confirm that? Uh, what's what's a uh, non-invasive treatment for a reef tank
2: for Ick? Yeah, so I'm defer here to to other other resources. Honestly, I go to the Humblefish forum and i link people to the humble fish. Bobby,
0: um, you need an answer in I'll, the chat.
2: I'll make, I'll make a couple of statements here. One one is, I don't want to give any advice about what to do with their tank. It's a veterinary
3: advice, and there are people with opinions about the regulation I, I'd like to stay out of giving official to add to your tank. Instead, I'd like to view it as an experiment
2: you know we're all conducting experiments on our tanks and i can give you resources i can link to the resources from the experts in fish disease and fish handling and and that's what i try to i try to do i haven't done i haven't done experiments on how best to clear ick from a tank and so i don't want to present some opinion that i don't have data. All right, that.
0: so you, hear, you heard that, folks. No questions about how to uh, handle uh, RTN, STN, how to treat that stuff. Um, go ahead,
3: Andy. Can
2: I, can I ask a question, go to ahead, Eli? Go, go ahead. Let me follow up on what Keith just said. I'm, I'm happy to answer the answer questions about that stuff, but I do want to put that, maybe it seems like a silly technical caveat, but I want to put that caveat out there. I am not giving you advice about what to put in your tank. I'll share you information know, that you can use to decide what to do to your tank, but um there's people the scenario when they're expensive they expensive fish or coral dyes, you know
1: question that came up today, right? So somebody somebody gets a very low value for Ick. Yeah, yeah. I think 0.03 yeah was the value right yeah. it's in the 13th percentile right. of the tanks you've tested. That person has not observed any fish health issues.
2: Yeah. What yeah. do
1: you any idea what's going on there? I mean you're confident that the signal is real. Yeah. It's not contamination. There is ick in the tank. What's it doing? Any, yeah. any
3: idea?
2: So, yeah, so, so let's, you said a few things and let's, let's hit on a few of them, okay? One is um, this finding of low levels of ick. This is, this is a reasonably new thing. The test has become more sensitive. I know we've discussed this amongst ourselves, but I think we haven't you know, done it on the live stream yet. Um, Starting uh, early this year, I introduced a, an improvement in the lab process for all of our tests. It's just an additional cleanup. The reason for this was to improve sequencing yield. And it did that. It improved sequencing yield. We get more, more data back and we get less variation in yield. Um, it also had the pleasant surprise of making the tank DNA test more sensitive than it was before. Now, this wasn't immediately apparent. It's not like we get the first results back and say, ah, everything's different. We had to get a few batches back and say, you know, we're seeing. And we're seeing it at a lower level than we used to. So we're finding ick now at low levels like 0.03 or 0.01%. Mm-hmm. Um, so we're finding it in more tanks than we used to, we're finding it at lower levels. It's all consistent with the test as also could be contamination and that was the first thing I was like oh crap you know something went wrong right but there's a few ways you can think about contamination Testing a bunch of samples at once if it was just sort of mixed into one of our common reagents you'd expect to find it in all of them at comparable levels and it's never like that we never find it in all the samples importantly we never find it in the negative controls right so again that doesn't look like contamination we also don't find it in samples that were next to each other uh, within the little plates that we use. That might indicate cross contamination That's not how it shows up. It just looks like we're really seeing truly uh, ick in tanks that we previously, or in a, in a higher frequency of tanks than, than we used to. Um, it's not the only thing, though, right? If it was just ick, you'd say, well, there's something wrong with the test. But no, we're seeing more of everything. So our overall diversity in tank DNA has increased by two to four fold. We're seeing more Aptasia than we used to. And I don't think there's more Aptasia in your tanks. I think everybody or a lot of people had Aptasia. And the test was previously not as sensitive for it as it is now. Okay, so all of that is just to put a little detail under the
3: statement that I believe this is real, these observations of uh, higher prevalence levels. So what's it doing? you know how how could it be in a tank and and not
2: causing disease well i think here we're talking about a, a reef keeping as long as reef keeping has been around right i think people have long suspected that ic i've i've read the statement on forums ic's our data don't support that our data don't support that ic is in, but they they do support the idea that Tanks that don't have visible
3: fish diseases ongoing sometimes have known, it's the case with ick, but it's the case with some
2: other parasites too. We've found tanks with uranema in them, uranema marinum, um, the one that is you know very clearly associated with disease. And it sometimes shows up in tanks that have no known infections going on. Um, This bizarre mixozoan parasite that I think Keith we might have found in your tank at one point Um, anyway it showed up in a handful of tanks you know this is a known parasite of butterfly fishes and other fishes that we keep in the hobby Um, but we frequently find that without active parasite infections so I mean broadly I think what's going on here is some of these parasites can exist without feeding on a fish like your anema right others exist in stages that that stage isn't actively infecting a fish right um, and you can have resistance in the tank right that the fish can become resistant and I, I mean I'm waiting for things that people have talked about on the forums here for decades because I don't have really new information to
3: share on that I think that all of those are you know explanations for what we're seeing but what we're seeing is
2: that tanks that don't have an active known fish infection can have detectable and convincing levels of of some fish parasites uh,
0: interesting including... um so bobby commented in terms of the possible um treatment he said that uh, possible in tra- tank peroxide dosing but it needs more testing for eliminating marine egg. Um, alex maria yeah. is saying uh to treat it we can just Remove all the fish for about 60 days from the tank and treat them with copper. That is the only true solution besides not introducing pair. Yeah, you know, I mean, that's a tough one if you've got an established reef tank.
3: Right, there's a lot of approaches yeah. out there, yeah. right, for... Um, yeah.
0: But, uh, so, Eli, you mentioned that, um, you know, there, there was a statement um, mm-hmm. people were wondering about in terms of, is it present in every reef tank? What, what about right. coral pathogens? You know, are, um, is there some level of coral mm-hmm. pathogens in everybody's reef tank, you know, are, are your tests able to pick up even the smallest percentages of, um, you know, coral pathogens in a tank or sure. Go ahead.
2: Yes, yeah, it's, it's a good question. We, we can extend it to, to that. To that group, too. Um, so, no, I I absolutely see reef tank samples that have very nice microbiomes, lots of data, you know, very deep sampling and we don't find a single known coral pathogen in them. So, so I, I definitely
3: would not make the statement that coral pathogens are in every tank. At least we don't have data that are in every tank. Um, similar to what we were just discussing about, um, about
2: fish parasites, um, You know we do, we do find low levels of coral pathogens in some tanks where people say, no, my corals are healthy. Um, it's a challenging game we're playing here. You know, everybody's keeping different corals, has a dozen different parameters that differ among their tanks, and and we're trying to, trying to generalize. Um, you know, things like how much is too much for a particular coral pathogen. Well, it may very well depend on a lot of things like, like what kinds of corals you
0: have. So, you know, Andy, you and I have been going back and forth on this. I know you've done a lot of research in terms of the prevention of coral pathogens coming into a tank, right? You know, so how feasible is it to keep pathogens out of a tank? If you're getting frags from somebody, or if you're getting, you know, some tank water, from somebody with a fish in it, you know, can coral pathogens, um, be transferred via the water? Um, obviously I guess it can be transferred via corals, but is there an effective way to prevent them via dips? And what would that protocol look like? You know, I think that's probably more of a question for you, Andy, in terms of that protocol. But I guess also, yeah, also so, Eli, in terms of, I guess, my, my more macro questions in terms of is it feasible to prevent, you know, parasites, coral pathogens from coming into a reef tank? You know, that.
3: Right.
2: I mean, I, I think it's a goal that we should all striving for, and I think we can achieve it to some extent, um, probably not perfectly. One thing I want to uh, mention based on what you just said, um, you, were, you were talking about the water. Um, I, I want to just emphasize that we, we do separate our tests of the water and the biofilm, and, and so I can kind of speak to that and say that the water does contain a lot of, you know, when we find coral, coral pathogens, we find them in the water. That's the way I should say this. We don't find them in the swabs from the pipe. So, uh, if we're worried about transferring con- coral pathogens from one tank to another, we absolutely should be thinking about the water as a possible vector. There's good evidence for that. Yeah.
1: Yeah. So, um, if, if I could add on to that, um, yeah. I think that uh, I'm not sure what, I don't remember what Eli's prevalences are, but. You know, it, there's a good 10% of tanks that have uh, SETLD bacteria. There's less than that that have ArcoBacter. These are pathogens that um, we have fairly strong circumstantial evidence that they cause pathology in, in reef aquariums. And um, they absolutely can be transferred by water. We know that SETLD in the wild is spread in the water. Um, and so how do you avoid that? That's a great question. So um, I've kind of gone around and around about this, um, but I think really the best way to address it is to have a uh, quarantine system and do a lot of observations. And then if you bring in new corals that have um, issues that you see, um, you'll know, you wanna, you'll have to treat them. And we'll talk about some things that I did to treat, to treat my own tank. Or bacterial issues. Um, but you also have to, it's, it, I think it's It's a little bit, it might be a little bit like Aptasia in that it, it might just, oh, it, it's so hard to keep it out of uh, a display system that it's always gonna sneak in somehow because it can be transferred in the water. Um, I think we have to learn about how to manage a low level of these pathogens. And I'll just give one example of one thing that I've, that I very much focused on, on my own uh, reef tank husbandry is um, being really careful about um, if pieces of acros get broken off like I have a I have a naso tang that you'll see uh, when you play the tank video that uh, likes to swim into things and and break and and frag colonies and so I have little bits of coral falling I'm showing the, the video
0: deck. now there Andy
1: and, oh okay okay yeah it, it, speaking of that, naso, uh just so, just to, to calm everybody down, um, I had some tank police commenting on my video because if I take the screen off of the tank, that fish just starts swimming around like that. Like normally, he's just super mellow. And so I took the t- top of the tank off, the, the screen top off. And the tang is just going back and forth and back and forth. And it looks like he's pacing and not happy. And so I had tang police telling me to get that, get that nasal tang out of that. (laughs) He's
0: just a little disturbed about the top being off, huh? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah,
1: yeah. But uh, he still remembers when I had to catch him and throw him in quarantine because of a velvet outbreak, probably. But anyway, um, you know, I was finding that there were all sorts of little bits of acros in my sand bed. And I very much believe that pathogens do really well in the sand bed. And I noticed that if I, um, if I was to, to leave a frag in the sand bed and just let it kind of let it be, I would notice it would STN or RTN. And that's giving that pathogen a place to thrive and presumably raising its levels in the water and possibly setting yourself up for it spreading to your other colonies. In your tank and so one of the things that i'm really careful with now making sure even though i think i probably have pathogens in the tank is i'm very careful about keeping any sort of corals preventing them from getting buried i have goniopora that if they get buried in the sand sometimes i've seen that develops into brown jelly infections and um, stn often rtn happens to little frags of apros in the sand so keep that sand clean to keep those pathogen levels low is my new mantra.
2: Yeah, interesting. And you know, maybe maybe if we can generalize from that a bit, it's like you're you're minimizing, you're working to minimize the amount of diseased coral tissue in the tank. Right? If if one little yep. frag gets hit yep. by the sand, you're removing it or rescuing it. And yeah. Yeah, I mean I I do think that's an important management strategy for all of us to keep in mind with coral disease is the, the bacterial load matters, right? So if you have a big fat diseased colony in the tank, that's not doing any favors for the other guys in the tank, you know, whether, yeah. whether you want to sacrifice the colony or move it to a hospital, minimizing the amount of diseased tissue in the tank seems like a very good strategy. I mean,
0: how, how, um, how problematic can said? can a sand bed be if you're stirring that thing up. You know, I was, um, I was managing some cyano in my 187 gallon display. I had a little sand in there. So I was taking a powerhead, blowing it around and, um, I, uh, was blowing some cyano off the rocks, but I was also kind of getting onto the sand bed and all that stuff. And, and, um, you know, I kind of had some episodes where some corals were not looking happy, you know, over those, uh, weeks when I was disturbing that sand bed. So, yeah, I mean, can can you be stirring the pot, so to speak, and really kind of um, giving some of those pathogens more of a gateway to the corals if you disturb it too much?
2: I think it makes a lot of sense. I mean, the the sand bed has a very different microbial community. We have data on that. Um, And it's, you know, it's consistent with some of the some of the changes that we'll talk about in Andy's tank. Um, That is the biofilms and sand beds have a really high Rhodobacteraceae level. Um, this is a group that includes the SCTLD pathogens. Um, so if you're stirring up the sand bed, you're certainly increasing the levels of those, that family, the Rhodobacter family, uh, in the in the water column, at least on some temporary basis, right? Until they sort of settle back up. Um, I don't have evidence to say that you know higher rhodobacteraceae definitely corresponds to a to a coral disease level, um, but what I just want to add is that people have long discussed the the benefits or harm of stirring sand beds, right? I think this has been a long debate on the forums, and I guess I'm just trying to add that I agree very much with what you're saying. It, in addition to any nutrient effects you might have by stirring the sand bed, you're certainly disturbing the microbial community. Yeah.
0: Um, so Andy, getting back to what we were talking about in terms of trying to prevent the um, spread of coral pathogens from one tank to the other, what, uh, can, can you share with us what you've been experimenting with in terms of protocols for dipping?
1: Well, I've so we've, we've used some antibiotics and just let me, let me say something about antibiotics first. Um, I think of antibiotics as a tool that are, it's a relatively extreme tool. Um, I think that every, every reef keeper ought to have a fire extinguisher in their fish room, okay? Antibiotics are like a fire extinguisher, okay? Antibiotics are there to put out fires. And so if you want to think about what's an appropriate way to use an antibiotic, Think about how you'd use a fire extinguisher. Keith, would you prophylactically treat your walls in your fish room with a fire extinguisher to prevent fire? Uh,
3: I Probably think not, not, right?
1: Probably not. I wouldn't either. But I've got a fire extinguisher in my fish room, right? And so I, I think about antibiotics that same way. And so um, I have moved, I've gone through several different things, but I've moved to having a uh, quarantine, like a first resting place for my new Ghanis, because I'm really into Ghanis, okay? And one of the things that Eli and I and I have discovered is that Arcobacter is, um, at least correlated, likely the causative agent of uh, brown jelly disease in Ghanis, just like it is in Euphilia. And um,
2: I don't want, go ahead. And let me, let me just real quick add to that. We're talking about one very particular type of Arcobacter not identified to a species level. Yep, We just call it type 1103.
1: Um, Arcobacter 1103.
2: Yeah, so I just want to be clear, there are dozens, if not hundreds, of different archobactors out there in marine samples. So it, this is a very specific finding that it, that it is reporting. Yep. It's the same one that uh, is associated with brown jelly disease.
1: Yep. And the same one we found uh, related to RTN and millies too, which is something we found more recently. but. But anyway, um, so my thinking is now that I bring all my new Ghanis to my, um, to one of my FRAG systems and that I observe them. And if I see any evidence, uh, retracted tentacles, um, over time, if I see any evidence of, um, what I've come to recognize as, as, you know, pre-symptoms of brown jelly disease, then I, then I do a dip where I will, um, I've switched now. I'd, I had used cipro, but now I use oxalenic acid because um, it's, a, it's an antibiotic not not used in human medicine. So it's a little better, a little a little better approach for treating uh, pets, I think. Um, and so I do dips over. I do three dips every two days um, for two to four hours, depending on how much time I have, um, and uh, that's very effective at um, preventing me from introducing uh, brown jelly on a new piece of Ghani into my display or into my um, sort of second tier FRAG system. So I know I do not prophylactically dip everything. I wouldn't, like I said, I wouldn't spray my wall with a fire extinguisher prophylactically. I don't prophylactically dip things that I get in because I don't want to overuse these antibiotics and um, potentially, you know, lose their lose their effectiveness
0: and and should we be concerned about back-to-back dips let's say uh you know we end up dipping something with antibiotics to try to prevent uh, some bad bacteria from getting in the systems and then we want to also dip um in uh, potassium uh, chloride to prevent uh acro eating flatworms you know can
1: can uh, actually back-to-back is not a problem at all no these are easy very easy on the animals yeah I mean, the, that, that two-hour dip with aeration, they, you know, they do great with that. Potassium chloride is another really easy dip on the animals. That barely, barely touches have, it. Uh,
0: same experience, um, Annie, with uh, um, potassium chloride. I find that to be extremely gentle and very effective in terms of blowing up those acro-eating flower worms. Um, let's get to a couple of questions from the, uh, from the viewers here. We've got a few of them. Alex uh, Correa, in your experience, are the coral pathogens as bacteria normally related to relatively higher nutrients by percentage of tanks tested? Have you seen that, um, Eli?
2: That is a question I could answer, and I don't know the answer. I'm sorry. Um, our database does include that information. Um, and I think, I think we'd have sufficient power to, to answer that question in our database. Um, so I guess I'm talking myself into saying I have no excuse for not having an answer for you. I think I think we have data to bring bear on it. There is uh, evidence in the literature for that idea, um, but I haven't haven't seen it in our data yet. I will have to have to look at it.
1: Uh, um, another. Yeah.
0: There's
2: also, Keith,
1: yeah. if I could just jump in, there's some circ- circumstantial evidence for that uh, from the time series of my tank that we'll look yep. at later. Okay.
0: Um, I think, Eli, there's another question for you. Rob uh, Robby's reef. How many data points does Eli think we need before other scientists can start to use this testing to find actionable items?
3: I, I mean, I think I think we have actionable items now. I, I think the... Um,
2: I think the utility of these data, the practical applications of these data will continue to grow over time. Um, Right now, we can, you know, scientists, whether they are research scientists, we have research scientist clients at universities and at public aquaria who use our service for that kind of thing. Um, But also, um, I don't know, what's the citizen scientist maybe is the right way to say this? You know, hobbyists are also conducting real experiments in their living rooms very tightly controlled with good record keeping. Um, you know citizen scientists in the reef keeping hobby can use our service right now to get some actionable items. But but I do want to I do want to acknowledge where the question's coming from that sort of we're in the oh so, you know I can't I can't tell you the identity of every bacterium that's in your sample. I and I certainly can't tell you a treatment for every every pathogen out there. Frankly, we're still discovering pathogens in the world of coral microbiology. So I want to acknowledge where the question's coming from that right now it's only part, it's only a, a subset of the potential for where it will be in the future, but, but already we have actionable items. You know, We find just one example, this Archibacter that we've been talking about. It's present in somewhere in the neighborhood of, uh, I think it's 10-ish percent of tanks that we test. Um, This thing is so tightly associated with coral disease. There's no doubt in my mind, this is the causative agent of some coral diseases. Um, There are published reports of other archivactors causing coral diseases. So it's not crazy to speculate this. And we've seen this tested in just about every direction, this archivactor association. Um, And there's a treatment, including an in-tank treatment. and so, so there's just one good example where right now, I think, you know, hobbyists or scientists who are studying coral diseases can use our, use our data and get some actionable items out of it. As we learn more, the list of actionable items will only grow.
0: Yeah, I mean, I, I've, um, I've certainly gotten usable data from you, uh, Eli, and I know Andy has as well in terms of the... Um, yeah. Uh, coral pathogens because I had a lot of RTN and STN events going on in one of my uh, display tanks and and so I did a pre test with you guys and it showed uh, that I had a couple of um, I think and you probably remember this in terms of what I had in there but it was uh, I think it was uh, Arcobacter right Arcobacter and Jimmy right and then uh, I did the post after doing an oxalic acid oxalic acid treatment. And the, the Archibacter was completely gone, and, and the uh, shimia was uh, significantly reduced, I believe. But it, maybe I flip-flopped that. Yep. Yeah. Um,
3: Five times lower. And, and you had similar results yeah. too, right? Yeah. yeah. Yeah.
2: So, so I mean, this is great. This is exactly what we need more of in the hobby: is replicated experiments like this. Uh, you know, I'm often when people do these experiments, they're unable to replicate them themselves because it's pretty hard. Run on one reef tank, let alone two. And if you did run two reef tanks, they wouldn't be identical, so you wouldn't have a very nicely replicated design anyway. So I love these independently replicated—you know, different reef keepers, different different states, different tanks—and we get a consistent result, at least a result in the same direction. Um,
0: and and let's also emphasize. And, go ahead.
1: I was just going to add one thing to what Eli was saying. Um, so thinking globally, our, our European friends do not have access to these antibiotics, right? And so, because of that, um, I don't, I don't think that that um, antibiotics like we have access to in North America for these these kinds of um, issues in reef tanks. I don't think that's the long-term future of the reef keeping hobby. I think probiotics are the long-term future of the reef keeping hobby, and there's a lot of exciting research being done to save wild reefs using probiotics. In fact, Eli's been in contact with some of those folks. And um, wow, I mean, it, it's challenging to apply probiotics to wild reefs because of the scale. Not, not so challenging in a reef tank.
3: Yeah,
1: um, I think there's some really promising and- things uh, in the future for probiotics. Andy,
0: can you explain a little bit more in detail for folks uh, like myself in terms of that don't have a complete handle on what probiotics can do? What, um, what are we seeing there?
1: Well, I think Eli actually knows the story better than me, actually. But um, uh, Montastria, which is a Caribbean coral, has been decimated by SCTLD. And a former colleague of ours is on a team that developed a probiotic that they found um, – that they found a bacterium that was present in resistant colonies of Montastria. So colonies that live under SCTLD. And so they, they were able to test a bunch of different substances um, and they found one that had um, antibacterial activity against the SETLD bacteria. They did a, an experiment and found that it reduced um, SETLD by like 66%. And now the challenge is in, in lab experiments, and now the challenge is scaling it up to to, to save Montastria on wild reefs. And there's no reason why, um, as those things are being developed for all these different species that are being threatened by things like S C T L D, um, that these bacteria can't be utilized for the reef reef aquarium hobby. Yeah. Um, absolutely you know, right. one
0: one thing I was gonna mention, and 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 Andy, you uh you already kind of alluded Um, To it and is that um, you know we have to really be careful in terms of treating our tanks with antibiotics. You know I think there's a lot of folks out there that um, are seeing these RTN and STN events and and um, just right right away want to be able to medicate that tank to to solve that problem. And but we just don't know a lot about you know how much impact antibiotics, how often you, you put antibiotics into a tank, you know, can that create these resistant strains of bacteria where down the road, antibiotics are not going to work if you just keep hitting the tank with more and more uh, antibiotics. So I think that's other, you know, research that would be great to have to kind of know what those limitations are and exactly at what point should you be, you know, taking that drastic step of using antibiotics on a tank.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's why you don't do it. You don't use them prophylactically. Right. The key is to not use antibiotics repeatedly on the same system. That is a recipe for disaster. I hear some people talk about using chemiclean like every three months. Chemiclean is erythromycin. You're doing that to your tank every three months. That's not a good idea. That's exactly what you don't want to do.
2: Yeah. 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 And you know, in addition to these very real concerns about antibiotic resistance, both for the tank and for us, um, because of course antibiotic resistance can be transferred around uh, from one one bacterium to another. But in addition to all of that, there is also just the the, the unintended consequences on the rest of the microbiome. Um, you know, presumably, if you're listening to this podcast, your um, YouTube, sorry, whatever we call it. Um, it's if, both. You're, if you're watching right now, it's, it's both. It's, it's all of these, all of the above, <laughs> yeah. Eli. Um, you presumably believe that bacteria matter at some level in the aquarium, right? Otherwise, you probably wouldn't be listening. Well, when you hit your tank with a big dose of antibiotics, they're not silver bullets. You know, you're killing a bunch of stuff. And basically what you're trying to do, I mean, it's a terrible analogy. It's like chemo with cancer, right? You're trying to kill the target thing. And not kill everything else, but you know you're making everything else sick. Um, stop waving my hands and talk about data. So with um, Cipro, we use Cipro as an in-tank treatment for brown jelly disease. I use it as a last resort. I'm not recommending this as you know what everybody should go out and do today. But we have very carefully chosen low, low dosage, a dosage that I chose because it would kill Arcobacter and not other bacteria. Um even at that low dosage, we see an impact on the community. We see consistently the ammonia oxidizing microbes go down. Now, if you come in with 10 or 20 times higher dosage, that's a nuclear bomb going off in the microbiome. Um, so I mean one, one point I want to make there is just to consider your dosage. In in addition to being hesitant to use them in the first place, consider your dosage. More is not necessarily better. Um, and two probably whatever dosage you used there's going to be some kind of impact on the rest of the community and it would be a great idea to at the very least measure it afterwards and make sure you still have kind of an intact community ideally it would be great to do a, a before and after
0: so andy you mentioned kami uh, clean and, and uh, the dangers of potentially hitting a tank uh, repeatedly with chemi clean to um, solve um, you know cyano um, you 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 recently did that, and you've um you've, you know, I get, did it. I did it once. You did, you did it once, <laughs> right? But you also did a a pre post uh, with with Eli, and I think you're um you're waiting for one set of the results. That the pre has to be rerun, I think, right? But in, okay. in in terms of the post, share with us what you found with the post.
3: Yeah, so
1: it took out the cyanobacteria, and I'm gonna when we, when we look at the time series, I'm gonna talk about some of the things that are related maybe to the appearance of the cyanobacteria. Um, but it, it wiped out the cyanobacteria, but it wasn't easy on my tank. I mean, um, I, I did all the recommended dose. I did everything like they recommend and I lost a couple frags and my corals looked very unhappy for a couple days. I lost one of the frags I got from Keith, which may be very which sad. One? Um, but it did, I mean, it did work. And I, I was really, sick of having cyano in the sand bed and so um i thought hey i've done some other experiments on my tank i'm going to do a pre and post with uh eli's service and and see what what i can show for other people what does it do and so yeah we got to wait to see that i think maybe june 4 is when we get those data back
0: yeah you know uh way to solve that problem is pull a sand bed like i did (laughs) <laughs> uh yeah my cyano has yes. definitely been uh, greatly reduced without the uh, the sand bed but uh you know that's a uh, it, it's a very personal choice right some people like the sand beds other people can uh, live without them and i uh, if i didn't uh, i lost all my leopard wrasses in that tank so i was like all right you know what i don't have any leopard wrasses anymore um i can pull the sand bed because i keep messy sand beds as it is so they're not pretty and
1: so keith i was just talking to steve wiest and Steve had an issue with dinoflagellates, and he decided that the dinoflagellates would were due to his the presence of his sand bed. Now Steve is very into aesthetics, yeah. as you know,
0: right? and he's gonna he's gonna he be a guest on this show bed. coming uh, coming up. Yeah, you know. he
1: has to have a sand bed, and so he sucked out a hundred pounds of sand to solve the dinoflagellates. But then he then he put he went and he bought eighty pounds of um, of live sand from uh kpi aquatics and then put it back in
3: <laughs>
0: nice and, and something happened uh, and so, after that, uh but,
1: he really he really wanted to have a say and, and
0: something else happened <laughs> but we're gonna well, we're gonna broach that topic with him when i have him on but uh i know something else uh, went down with that and um i don't want to give it away um oh okay so we're, we're definitely going to get to uh to the time series that that uh, Annie's been talking about. Another question that I thought was worth uh, asking from Alex is that: Are there some beneficial bacteria found only on the substrate, and others only in the water column? And if so, what species?
2: Yeah, um, the nitrifying uh, bacteria are clearly beneficial for water quality, at least, and you know, certainly well, well-studied, well-characterized mm-hmm. group. These groups are uh, by far m- much higher abundance in the substrate, the biofilm, um, whether you're looking at sand or what we recommend for testing is sort of the inner surface of a pipe. Um, uh, yeah, so we find higher levels of those in the, um, in the biofilm and substrate than in the water column. Importantly, uh, we do find uh, actually quite a high population of ammonia oxidizers in the water column. It's, it's higher in the biofilm in terms of percent community, but think about the sheer volume of the water in your tank. There's quite a high level of ammonia oxidizers in that large, large volume. So there's actually a a good amount of ammonia oxidation going on in the water too. I'm kind of wandering off topic here because that was an interesting and unexpected uh, result. Um, In the water, things that we find in the water but not the uh, substrate and biofilm I'm hard-pressed to think of beneficial bacteria we find there, but we typically find uh, the pathogens in the water sample rather than the the biofilm uh, sample. Now, we know that pathogens are surface-associated often, so I don't want to say that they are not associated with surfaces, just that we don't see them in our data, probably because of how we're sampling. I know that if you sample corals directly, we have some some clients who will swab a coral directly, and, and I know that we see coral pathogens at high levels there. So um, so they certainly are associated with some surfaces, um, but we see lots of them in the water.
0: So Eli, um, all right, yeah, I mean, it makes sense that the, the, the pathogens would be on the corals themselves, but why are they in the water column? Is that basically their mode of transport to go from one coral to the other, or is that uh, just too simplistic of a <laughs> reasoning?
3: So,
2: so some of these things are actually motile, right, and they can swim. They are not um, the the coral pathogens are typically not bacterioplankton, plankton that is bacteria that are specialized in free swimming, swimming around the ocean, right? But there are bacteria that do that. That's their mode of life. Um, some of these some of these bacteria that infect corals have limited to be doing limited swimming, but I think the bigger the bigger issue that we're seeing here is in an aquarium there is this. Incredible Incredibly artificial surface area to volume ratio. Right? There's a huge amount of surface in an aquarium relative to a pretty small amount of volume if you compare it to the ocean. Right? All the water in your aquarium is constantly sloshing back and forth around corals, you know, through the the three-dimensional structure of a coral colony, through the pipes. And so there's there's a large exchange. You know between the two populations in an aquarium so i i think a lot of what we're seeing here is in the water sample is just that it's just stuff getting knocked off you know in, into the water gotcha
0: um bobby miller has an interesting question can the reef safe cipro dosage used to treat brown jelly disease 0. 0.125 um, um, mgs per liter every 48 hours also possibly treat fish bacterial infections
3: Do we know the answer to that? It's a good question. I don't think anybody has tested it on on a known
2: um, fish pathogen. Um, We do have several common fish pathogens that show up in the hobby, whether they're causing a problem or not. They're in a lot of samples. And I bring that up to say that's a good testing ground to ask that question. Um, So we should have a lot of data on photobacterium damseli and Vibrio fortis. so I can I can look at that and ask whether, sort of, by accident, maybe we've seen some effects on those pathogens. Um, but I don't think anybody, none of our clients, have talked to me about you know using this in, in that context.
0: Um, um, interesting points here by uh, Intrinsic Reef. Um, have you discussed the proper disposal of tank water treated with antibiotics? Sending antibiotic-laden water into drains will encourage resistance in human pathogenic bacteria. And then uh, Champion Lining Supplies says best to bleach your wastewater before dumping down the drain. What do you, what do you guys think about that in terms of uh, disposal? Well,
1: so, I mean, uh, the thing about antibiotics is that 40 to 90% of antibiotic activity is still present when they're excreted. Right. Mm -hmm. So, Keith, if you take an antibiotic, when you pee in the toilet, you take Cipro, it's about 90 percent active when it goes in the toilet and then that goes into the sewer. Mm -hmm. Okay. so all of the human use. Right. All those antibiotics go into the sewer and into the public sewer system. Okay. so with that in mind, um, you know, some water change water that has some antibiotics in it um, relative to that is pretty small. Um, so the quinoline antibiotics like, like Cipro and oxalonic acid, they break down in light. Um, so it's probably broken down somewhat too. However, if you want to feel better about it, you could maybe set your water change water out in the sun or something and get it to break down more. Or, or I think Champion Lighting Supply suggested adding bleach. I'm not sure if that, I'm not sure what that would do actually. But it seems like setting it out in the, in the sun might help break it down more. Um, UV. but you know antibiotics getting into the into the sewer system is a you know it's a huge it's a huge thing with millions of people that take antibiotics and then obviously don't pee into biohazard bags or uh, <laughs> sure. on antibiotics yeah. right so the contribution of reefers
2: is very very
3: small to that
2: yeah yeah all good points um, you know as soon as the question came up my mind kind of went in a different direction which is I've so I'm, I'm on a, a septic tank. I know some, some listeners out there may be on a septic tank. We, we would never put any salt down our our uh, septic tank anyway because of the impact on the on the microbial community there. So forget about the antibiotics in it. We're not putting the salt down there. Now, I, I guarantee you can get away with a little. So if somebody out there is doing it some, well, it's probably fine. But our, our practices don't put salt down the septic system. Um, so it's a moot point whether there's antibiotics in there. I, I very much like the the philosophy of the question, thinking about you know waste disposal. Um, yeah, I I dispose of my salt water um, on our driveway. Um, kills the grass, evaporates, and the grass will never grow there now. So I, I suppose if there's a small antibiotic load in my driveway, I'm not terribly worried about
3: that. Yeah.
2: Um- But yeah, I like the the philosophy. Let's think about where our waste goes and think about how to treat it. You know, um, I think it's a nice suggestion, the idea of using bleach to inactivate it. I know there are some compounds that could be inactivated in that way. I would just have to look at the specific one and ask, you know, what's the effective way to inactivate it?
0: So we've... um... We've talked a couple of, um, we've we've had a couple of questions and and discussions about um, coral pathogens being in the the water column and, and, and what have you and we haven't talked about the use of UV sterilizers and how that can impact the, uh, the microbiome. And, and maybe, uh, Eli, this is a good opportunity to look at my uh, microbiome results. Andy, I swear to God, we're gonna get sure. to your time series uh, stuff. That's, right. <laughs> that is gonna be the uh, the cherry on top in terms of-
1: Well, no, this is a good, Andy this is is a good segue, uh, Keith, because then Eli can explain how the graph, what the graph yeah. shows and so, stuff.
0: Eli, let's, um, let's look at my data because the, uh, the tank that was sampled for the microbiome was uh, I have a UV sterilizer on that, right? And um, I okay. think it's, it's, which, a, it's a typical. Which sample ID should we look at? That's a good question. It's the last one um, that you have for me.
2: The most recent one, so 1797, I think. You would know that, yep, I think um, the most recent one.
3: Making sure, making sure we're yeah. looking at the same um, thing. So I'm, I'm showing yeah.
0: everybody my diversity score, the percentile, and, and uh, it's, it's low. Right. right? And and uh, so with a UV sterilizer on the system, does that make sense to you in terms of having that low diversity score?
2: You know, I can't say that we've seen an effect on diversity. Um, we see such a wide, I know I've tested that question. Um, and I think the answer is we did not find a significant effect. There's a very wide range of diversity scores out there. And so you end up with this situation where there's a wide range without UV sterilizers, and there's a wide range with UV sterilizers, and we can't really tell the difference. Certainly, UV sterilizers kill stuff, so it makes sense to think that the diversity of a particular tank uh, could go down from the use of a UV sterilizer, um, but I can't say there's an overall an overall trend in the data. So
0: let's look at the community composition. I think that's um, yeah. uh, right an area where you can kind of see a distinct difference in terms of, all right, you know, this guy's sample, absolutely. he's got a UV sterilizer on there because his uh, the composition is different than the typical sample,
1: right?
2: Yeah, absolutely. And so if we're looking at the same one, I've scrolled down here to your community composition plot and it looks like it's it's mainly two groups, yeah. right? The yep. sort of purplish, vibrio, at the bottom Um, That's the group that starts with Vibrio, right? And then the orange Rhodobacteraceae. Are we looking at the same ones? Yep. Great. So yeah, um, those are two of the common groups. But what's missing is this pink group, the Pelagibacteraceae. And that's the one where it's such a striking effect that when I look at somebody's tank, I know this is either a, a very new tank, because Pelagibacteraceae take a while to build up to uh, a dominant level in the community. Either a very new tank or it's a tank running UV sterilizer because it's such a strong effect. Um, Interestingly, we've also seen that sort of go in both directions where people turn on the UV sterilizer. So the exact same tank with or without the UV sterilizer, we see this this effect.
0: So let me let me mention Eli that this is a healthy uh, tank. You know, it's an SPS dominant system and the corals are doing really well in there. So, um, you know, I guess that's a that's a um, that's always a very, um, you know, debated question in terms of should you be running UV sterilizers on a reef tank? And that's a tough one to answer, I guess.
2: It it really is. I mean, we can see from your tank and from some of our other clients, it is absolutely possible to have a very healthy, thriving tank with a UV sterilizer. Um, I think what our data show is a very clear effect on the microbial community. So if you go that route, you you have a reef tank with a fundamentally different microbial community than a natural reef. The pelagibacteraceae. if you were to sample on the Great Barrier Reef, a clean offshore face of the Great Barrier Reef, you'd find pelagibacteraceae and a couple kinds of cyanobacteria. They'd be the dominant groups there. So if you're running with UV, your (laughs) microbial community looks fundamentally different. Is that fatal? Clearly not, right? Because your tank's gorgeous. Other people, other clients of ours have beautiful thriving tanks. However, I would suggest that that same tank, if we could magically flip the switch without changing anything else, if we had flipped the switch and just increased the abundance of Pelagibacteraceae in that tank, I think it would only benefit the tank.
0: Can you do that by dosing, or will the UV knock that out when you're dosing? I mean, unless you take the UV offline for an hour after you dose—that's
2: that's the problem. You really got to take the UV out. So the issue, the issue with this group, UV you, you, out they permanently, are, not just off for an hour. Oh, sorry, you, you could turn it off completely, but I think if you turn it back on the next day, you're going to be knocking them out, knocking them down. Yeah. Okay. Now, I think there's, I think it's worth experimenting on this point. Um, The effect is so strong that I'm not giving any caveats here. I'm saying absolutely UV kills this group. However, we have seen a handful of tanks where they're running UV and they have a little bit of pelagibacteraceae. It's rare. Whenever it comes up, I email them and I'm like, I want to discuss this with you. I suspect there's something different about how UV is plumbed in different people's tanks. Maybe it's as simple as flow rate and wattage. Maybe it's something more complex about the arrangement of the plumbing. Um, they got to change the bulb. Yeah, I, I mean that's always my kind of. I I don't know. My my cynical view is like, yeah, you say you've got UV, but your your, your bulb's <laughs> dead. It's a effect. But but I don't know. You know. So all I know is they're telling me they have UV, and yet they have a little bit. My point is just to say maybe maybe there is some regime of turn the UV on for a while, turn it off for a while, but you know, we're in experimentation mode. The, the safest bet and what you will absolutely see in effect is if you turn off the UV and leave it off, you will see Pelagibacteraceae increase, at least if the nutrient levels are appropriate. If you have super high nutrient levels, these other groups will take over. Um, it, you know, it's not just driven by what you kill, it's also driven by what you feed. Um, the Pelagibacteraceae do really well in clean offshore water with almost no nutrients, just a couple of key nutrients that they need. Um, Given the
1: other, thing, Keith, the other thing, Keith, is that if you run a UV sterilizer, you lose the Pelagibacteraceae as a marker for tank maturity. Yeah. Mm. And so- so when you're setting up a new system, Eli has found that um, plagiobacter A.C. doesn't show up right away. And you'll see that in my data. Um, it, it, it shows up and it establishes itself when the tank is mature. And so it makes sense, I think, to um, you know, maybe add the UV sterilizer later if you're using um, microbiome to measure your tank maturity. Makes
0: <laughs> makes sense. Um- Two more questions and then we're gonna to get to uh, Andy's uh, time series. And, and the first question is for me, and that question is, um, given that pathogenic bacteria in the water column, what do you guys, um, what would you say, does the use of UV increase the likelihood that you will be able to bring down the population of pathogenic bacteria? Will, will that increase your odds of having an episode with your corals if you're running UV.
3: Well, it happened to you, Keith, and you have a robust UV system, right? (laughs) So I guess not enough.
0: We're not supposed to, like, use me as an example here. But uh, I'm I'm just (laughs) saying in terms of, obviously, it's not a complete failsafe. Everybody would be running UV and there would be no STM or RTM. But I I guess my question is, yes, it did happen to me. I was running UV, but if, um, you know, would the likelihood of that sort of thing be reduced if you're running uv 24 7. you're
2: You're you're asking whether we expect uv would knock out pathogenic some some portion of the pathogenic we'll bacteria pathogenic in the water bacteria. column I, i've gotta i've gotta say i'm skeptical about it um okay so first caveat out of the way i don't think we have a i don't think we have an experiment looking at that like, you know, turn off the UV and see if they go up or down. Turn it on and see if they go up or down. Um, but of course, we have lots of data without UV, lots of data with pathogens, and I don't see a trend that tanks that have UV don't have pathogens in them. Gotcha. If 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 I were if I were looking only at the data and asking, what do UV sterilizers do? I would conclude they only do one thing, and that is kill Pelagibacteraceae. I mean,
0: I see. And
2: dinos. and So I don't don't dispute the observation.
3: I'm only saying I don't see it in the data. Yeah, uh, yeah, I mean, we see parasites and pathogens in positive and UV negative tanks. Um,
2: I've run a lot of reef tanks and I've never used a UV sterilizer. I certainly don't believe they're necessary, but I've seen enough beautiful reef tanks with them that I believe they can be part of a a, a thriving reef tank system, right? Um, yeah, I, I just keep coming back to that statement that absolutely, if you use UV, you are altering the microbial community. And it's up to all of us to decide. You know, just like we each pick our own alkalinity levels, we might even have dif- disagreements on salinity. We we can all pick our pelagibacteria too, but I'm just saying, UV definitely is going to wipe it out. Yeah.
3: yeah. Um,
2: and your data, you know, support
0: that, of course. So here, here's an interesting question from Chris at ACI, and and I think I know where he's going with this question, but um, what are your thoughts on some species in the microbiome need mild exposure to UV to thrive in a closed system? And I think what, what Chris is getting at is that, um, you know, I think his observations are that uh, when, when he's running metal halides that, um, you know, versus LEDs, there seems to be, more of a likelihood of coral disease under leds versus halides because you've got that um, uv that's being the uvb from the um the metal halides that perhaps are keeping those pathogens in check mm-hmm. i
1: mean i think that's that, an easy experiment eli sure chris can send you uh, samples from Absolutely. halide tanks and non-halide
2: tanks yeah yeah that's right yeah that is that is not something we have have in our database, you know, type of lighting. I'm constantly come up, coming up with questions I should have asked, um, so I can't ask. I can't ask the question from our database um, because because we know that UV kills some groups and not others. Uh, it therefore makes sense that in the presence of UV, you're going to have an apparent increase in some groups, right? I mean, if if your ACA goes down, somebody else goes up. Um, and so that can be viewed as a stimulatory effect, uh, whether it's through competition or something more direct. Um, so we, we could expect that. We, we also have good reason to expect that um, there's nutrients that are produced through photooxidation or modified through photooxidation of chemicals in seawater. Um, and so I, I think that's another very plausible mechanism where UV exposure to the, sea, the water in your tank um, can cause photooxidation of nutrients that will then feed bacteria that require uh, those those nutrients. Um, I I know this is the case for some of the dominant groups in in marine aquariums, which is why I kind of go to that possible explanation. So so I don't have the specific mechanism like well it's going to definitely make this group go up, but I think it's very plausible. It makes sense and from a competition perspective maybe even inevitable that uv is also going to promote some groups while it's suppressing uh other groups
0: gotcha so all right andy at, at the beginning of the live stream i mentioned that you are a power user of eli's uh service so let's uh let's get down and dirty man and get into your uh into your time series let me um let me show sl- slide number one would that be a good one to start with
1: yeah yeah, show slide okay. number one. All right, man, yeah.
0: take us through what we're looking at here.
1: So I think Eli first told me about his idea for this company uh, over tacos or something for lunch. And I thought it sounded really cool. And uh, he doesn't live very far from me. And uh, he started up this service right around the time that I was setting up this big uh, Red Sea uh, 750 tank. And I saw the opportunity to collect a lot of data and learn something. Um, about microbiomes of brief tanks since before Eli, we knew essentially nothing, right? And so I've been collecting data over the last 45 months and um, I've learned a number of things. Um, I think that uh, I've learned, um, you know, what a good community looks like for my my tank. I've learned uh, how to establish that community and I've learned uh, what things look like when uh, the community goes awry and how to correct it. And so I'm just going to kind of go through basically the time series of the tank and, and the changes in the microbiome that Eli and I. Well, observed. I can tell
0: right now you're not running UV. So,
1: <laughs> I'm not running UV. <laughs> <laughs> you see how obvious that <laughs> so is?
2: You can see it. Yeah,
1: that's right. See, Keith is all over that. Um, so anyway, this is 45 months. And so the one thing you see right across most of the samples is that big fat band of Pelagibacter Um And so Eli talked about it before. It is the most common uh, group of bacteria on natural reefs that thrives in low nutrient conditions. Um, I don't believe we have data that corals consume it, um, but it, uh, it is found in basically optimal conditions, uh, for coral growth, low nutrients, um, and so on. And so, um, you can see what, so I started the tank in four 2019, I started the tank with a mix of dry and live rock. And then two months later we measured the microbiome for the first time. And you can see that it's completely different from the the graphs of the rest of the, uh, rest of the time, right? And Eli, I think can say that that's typical of a young reef tank.
3: Yeah,
1: uh, true. different families can kind of appear, uh, in not necessarily a predictable way, but what's predictable is that pelagibacteraceae is not. And so yeah. Eli glances at that and he says, that's not a mature system. Okay. So, Let's imagine that I'm cycling a new tank, I send data in, I send a water sample into Eli, how would I use this, okay? If I measure, if I want to keep SPS, if I want to keep Ghanis, more sensitive species, uh, I would get that result back and I would say that's not ready. That is not a mature community. I'm not going to add my more sensitive species to that. And um, at that time, I had some softies in the tank.
0: That's and a that's love, a really good so. that's a really good point, Andy, because, you know, a lot of people are always like wondering, you know, when is the right time to add corals to a reef tank? And you know, I think there's some folks out there that think you could add corals right away. Um, others um, don't believe that. But, um, you know, it, this is kind of great data to have to kind of get that benchmark. I think for SPS, I've always kind of thought like eight to nine months, you know, even if you start a tank with live rod, yep. that's yep. kind of like the marker. And so
1: in my experience, um, even if you start a new system with live rock, there is still, a, you know, a lot, of, a lot of chaos in the community, a lot of chaos in that community over the first few months. You get all kinds of stuff that happens. And, and even though I started this tank, it wasn't dry, you know, it was a little bit of dry rock, but it was a lot of live rock from a previous system. You know, look at the, look at the microbiome. Eli, were you going to comment on that?
2: Yeah, like uh, say yeah, something. To add the numbers. So, um, you know, we're we're sitting here and looking at these pictures, and we're all, we, the three of us have kind of looked at a lot of these pictures together. Right? Yeah. Um, uh, and it may be challenging for you know the first time user to get the picture back and say, well, sort of what should it look like? But I I just point out the numbers, the balance scores that were that you point zero one there, right? So a super low balance score initially corresponding to this very odd community. And then uh, a much more typical balance score, right? Up to 0.49 when we right. see Later on after start to show up. So yeah, just to say, there are some numbers the user could rely on and it's not just the picture,
1: right? right?
2: I think the picture is the most informative uh, way to look at this.
1: And I, I don't know, Eli, did you mention
2: the balance score and what it is and how it's calculated, how it can be used? We've, we've certainly talked about it at some point, um, and I have lots of you know, links in the report that explain to the user, but basically it's a number that expresses how normal is the community in your tank. What we're really doing there is comparing your whole community with the typical community of a healthy established reef tank that is the average from our large curated database. So we collapse all that down into a number. And if it's a high number, that means your community is very normal. It looks like a typical reef tank. And if it's a low number, um, it's nothing like a typical reef
0: tank. Here's a good question.
2: So 0.01 is about as low as you can get. Here's
0: a a good question from Eric uh, uh, Recchia. Hopefully I didn't mispronounce that. What data does Andrew have to show that microbial um, diversity correlates with tank maturity outside of defining maturity by a tank having specific microbial uh, diversity?
1: Uh, it's not it's not diversity. We're not talking about diversity. We're talking about the shape, what we're talking about what the graph looks like and how well it compares to Eli's um, average typical community. Eli, maybe you should explain that a little bit more. Yeah, so, so from his database, he has has an average typical community of a mature reef tank. Right. and then he correlates your community um, distribution with the mature one. Yeah, so mine, did not correlate at all with an average healthy reef tank in e- Eli's database.
2: Yeah, and so it's this metric that we're talking about is about the composition, right? Um, so it's not about it's not about counting how many different types, which would be diversity. Instead, it's about asking who, you know, which different types and how much of the different groups. So that's the composition. That's what we're looking at here. These pictures. And it's also reflected in the balance score. So Andy's just discussed how, how we calculate a balance score. This number ranges from 0 to 1. It's 0 if you're as different as you could possibly be, and it's 1 if you're as similar as you could possibly be. Um, so the higher it is, the more it is like a typical reef tank. Now, I think there was another question kind of buried in that, that question, and that is sort of addressing some circularity saying that well you're defining it based on the microbiome how do you know that unless it's the microbiome i didn't say that well but i think you know what i'm getting at what i want to say is we've seen in a couple of a couple of experiments so real experiments where you start a tank or replicated tanks and monitor their microbiome over time we've seen that the balance score increases over time and so i mean just based on watching the clock you know the tank is getting more mature right? Because it's now four months old instead of zero months old. And we see that the balance. So so just making the simple point that we do have, we do have direct evidence that um, as the tank gets more mature chronologically, it also approaches this community that we are calling the mature community.
0: Um, so Eric wants to clarify is, uh, that initial uh, question. I think his second question is kind of getting more to the point where he really wants to find out. Is there data, data to show that specific microbiomes actually correlate with better growth slash health of SPS?
2: This, this is the hardest thing. This, this is so hard. I mean, it's the field of coral disease research struggles to, struggles to identify the pathogen, even at the point of speculating and saying it's this one pathogen let alone fulfilling the postulates and really confirming it's a pathogen. And that's for pathogens, the things that have huge effects on health, right? The things that have subtle effects on health, um, these are just hard experiments. And I think the answer to your question is I'm unaware of a study that demonstrates outside of heat stress. I can talk about heat stress, but outside of that, um, in terms of general growth, reproduction, anything like that, I'm unaware of a study that links a specific microbiome state to a specific uh, health condition. Um, Long ago, when I was a coral biologist and studied corals, not bacteria that live on corals, I was quite skeptical of these claims linking microbiomes to apparently everything. In my view, in those days, I was a bit cynical about it and i was like come on you guys are just finding a different microbiome on everything you study and calling that causal you know well there was a great study that came out um i don't know five or six years ago i can't cite any details right now but we can dig it up where they they experimentally demonstrated that the microbial community on the coral itself uh directly impacts its heat tolerance And so it had not, in that case, it was not about genetics. It was not about history. It was about do you have the right bugs living on Hmm. them? That's one very uh, specific phenotype, right? Heat tolerance. There's lots of other ones we may care about. Um, I don't have a paper to point to you saying that the right microbiome helps corals grow better, but we have a lot of clients like Andy who observe their tank very closely and observe a particular microbiome state when the tank's doing well and a very different microbiome state uh, when the tank's doing badly.
1: Yeah.
2: Yeah, that's, that's what I was gonna
1: get to. I mean, what we can do is we can collect data on our own systems, yeah. And we can, we can recognize when things are doing really well and how the microbiome data um, correlate with those. There's yeah. never gonna be a paper written about, you know, reef tank, SPS growth in color uh, probably, um, but we can collect a lot of compelling anecdotal data, uh, correlational data on our own, and on our own systems. And I'm going to talk about that in a minute when my tank is doing the best. So maybe, yeah. uh, Keith, do you have another question? No, why don't
0: you, uh, why don't you, yeah, you want me to uh, bring up okay. slide number two or you still, uh, no, no, let's just stay, stay on, on this one? for now. Okay.
1: okay. And so that was the original, uh, what the original community looked like. And then about four months later and after that, we see the pelagibacteriaceae band um, emerge. And the tank uh, was doing great during that time. I introduced my ACROS and GANIs. Andy, let me
0: interrupt you. Were you doing any bacteria dosing during that time?
1: No, I have not dosed any bacteria okay. of any kind. No, okay. never. I, although I'll, I'll talk about some stuff I'm playing around with with purple non-sulfur bacteria okay. uh, in a bit. Uh, so anyway, um, from 1024 to 430, we see the balance score go up, um, meaning that we getting closer to Eli's average healthy community, and the pelagibrector ACE band increases, and TANK is doing great. All my TANK notes at that point say, you know, my ACROS are, getting good, are having good growth, I've got good color, um, really no issues to speak of. And then everything went to hell in that I had two cases of velvet hit my system and I had to pull all my fish two different times out of the tank and put them into a quarantine system in my garage and uh, try to save them. And so the tank went fallow during that period. And this, this was very frustrating because my nutrients then really started to go down in my, in my tank and so both my nitrate and phosphate dropped, and corals started to pale, and I started losing things, and it was, I associated that with uh, with low nutrients. This was also sort of peak pandemic, right? And so I was very busy with the extra work stuff, and so I was mostly focused on trying to save all these fish, and um, I didn't keep as close of, uh, a close view on my parameters, and so, I had started dosing nitrate and phosphate, so trisodium phosphate and sodium nitrate, and to get my nutrients up. And I did that slowly and carefully until I ran out of my phosphate reagent. And then it was during the pandemic and I couldn't get my hands on any more Hanna phosphate reagent. And so I went about two months without testing phosphate. And then I come back and um, the next time I tested, my phosphate was at one. 1.0 1.0 phosphate, nitrate, 1.0, okay? Now, in, what I've learned over the years is that everything does better in my system if I keep a ratio of about 100 to 1 nitrate to phosphate, and that's always what I shoot for. And so I'm, if, if nitrate gets too low, I need to dose nitrate. Oftentimes, in my system's nitrate will get low and phosphate will creep up. And when that happens, when phosphate gets higher than nitrate, I tend to have issues with dinoflagellates. And so sure enough, I started to have issues with dinoflagellates, phosphate hit 1.0. And then right around the same time I sent in a test to Eli. And um, phosphate was at 0.8 when I, when I actually collected the, the data but they had, had been higher for about two months. All the corals are do, doing terrible, Acropora is dying. I pulled everything out, all the acros, all the acros out of the tank and put them in my, put them in my uh, frag tank to save them and take a look at what the microbiome looks like. Flagibacter AC band is gone. Remember, it's a band of um, bacteria that likes low nutrient conditions. Oceanospirilla ACE shows up, which is a family that thrives on high nutrients. Um, and I think, I think that high phosphate, the, nit- the nitrate was not high, it was only about one, but the high phosphate, as far as I can tell, was contributing to that very different microbiome. Eli, what do you think about that? I yeah. Buy on there.
2: yeah. I mean, it's, it's such a striking difference, right? It's a night and day difference. It's just, it's exactly what, what I had in mind when we were first talking about these measurements way back when, you know, I was, I was trying to grow corals and sometimes things go badly in your coral tank and you just have this sense that there's something there that you're not measuring, right? The, the nutrients aren't way off, the salinity is right. And and here it is. I mean, just such a clear example of there's the something well different.
1: in this case phosphate was high. Sure. Yeah. I just in your case had been. been yeah. <laughs> yeah.
2: But it's just, I mean, you don't have to be an expert to know those two different, right? That's
1: that's right. And so I, I did similar. a bunch of water changes, I added GFO and I brought things down. And um, then I and at this point I added added my fish at all past quarantine, add the fish back to the system and the nutrients stabilized at my 100 to one ratio that I like about nitrate at about 15, phosphate about 0.05 to 0.15 within that range. And um, this is the period of about a year then that I like to think of as sort of the golden age of my tank, it was amazing. Right around this time, Keith, I don't know if you remember, um, I sent you a picture of these Oregon tort frags that over 10 months, quadrupled in size. I went from little Oregon tort frags that grew into large colonies in 10 months. I had tremendous growth in color over this about a year period of time. And if you look at the microbiome during this time, um, basically my balance scores were, were 90% and above one of them was like 98th percentile, wow. meaning that it was almost an exact copy of Eli's average, um, community. And, uh, this was basically, this is the community that I learned that I want to aspire to, if I'm measuring a microbiome in my tank. Um, again, you know, all through this, I, I measure alkalinity, I measure uh, phosphate nitrate, all the regular parameters. And um, those have been, with one exception of phosphate, those have been stable throughout this time. Um, but it's the microbiome that really reflected uh, another parameter that, uh, I now recognize as being associated with coral growth and health. And so, um, yeah, that was, that was, that was great. That was the
0: golden age of the tank.
1: Go ahead. Go ahead. I was just
0: going to say that's the golden age of the tank there. huh?
1: The golden age. Exactly. And now, uh, Eli and I think that we start to see some, some signs of, um, uh, old tank syndrome or things that we would ascribed to old tank syndrome. It's a four-year-old system, so it's not that old, but it's got a sand bed, um, and it seems to be shifting in a different direction, okay? Again, you know, these are things that you can see in the microbiome test, but not necessarily what, they, what you would see just by measuring nitrate and phosphate and alkalinity, okay? So right around, uh, so 418, okay, um, you know, a little bit later, I started to have brown jelly on my donnie's. And it started it was spreading throughout. I had about 30 goni colonies in the in the tank, and they would retract their polyps and they would uh, develop kind of a, a weird film on them. and then the tissue would just kind of disintegrate. If, if, hmm. if it got in the flow, the tissue would just kind of disintegrate. They were just you know, it was it was very, very fast tissue necrosis. And um, right around that time then um, I had so I, I tested the water. And then I got a swab kit from Eli, and so we swabbed a Ghani that had brown jelly on it, and we swabbed a control Ghani that was healthy from the same tank. We identified Arcobacter in the water, and we identified Arcobacter in the brown jelly, and not in the and not in the negative control. And so, as I said, alluded to earlier, that was the first uh, evidence that um, Arcobacter is linked to brown jelly disease in Ghani's as well as Euphilia, which is what Eli showed earlier. And so when I got that data back, then I, I decided to treat the tank with Cipro and I used Eli's low dose treatment. I also took the remaining guppies. I lost half of my collection. I had about 15 left. Hmm. And I did uh, dips in Cipro then every two days, uh, three times. And that, that wiped it out. That took it right out. Um, the brown jelly disease went away And um, I had another six months of, you know, really, really good conditions. Now, you can look, if you look at the, um, can you see that in this view of the figure, Eli, the and Keith, the difference in the community between when there was a brown jelly outbreak and after the Cipro treatment?
2: Yeah, sure, yeah. I mean, it looks like you see how the pink band
1: gets a lot bigger and how the orange band gets smaller when um, the Cipro treatment is applied. The balance score goes up. So basically I had this disrupted community with brown jelly right. after we treated with cipro a month later the community looked much more similar to the to the community during the golden age of the tank.
2: Yeah. Yeah and I'll just add that w- we had those same conclusions in my in my tank experiments with this too. So that is an uh, in- increase in balance score and increase in uh, pelagio bacteria. Yep.
1: So around the same time, right around the, when the brown jelly happened, I started to get some persistent cyano on my sand bed. And Keith, I mentioned this to you before. I know you dealt with some of this, too. Um, I started to get cyano. And I, normally I haven't had, it's not something I've had trouble with in my systems in the past. And this cyano on the sand bed that I just couldn't get rid of. Uh, around the same time, then, you can see that the orange band, the Rhodobacteraceae, is becoming a larger component of the community. So there's a shift from a golden age of the tank where it's a relatively small proportion to later on where it's a, uh, a larger proportion of the community. Okay. And then, um, then I had an interesting thing happen that may- maybe my- by sharing this story will help some people. Um, so I didn't know this, but if you dose nitrate to your tank, uh, when the nitrate is consumed, it serves as a secondary source of alkalinity mm. in your system. So what happens is that um, when ammonia is converted to nitrate in your tank, it consumes alkalinity. When the nitrate is reduced, then the alkalinity is is released back into the system. So if the ammonia is generated in the tank and it all happens in the tank, then there's no net loss or gain. But if you add nitrate from the outside into your tank, it releases alkalinity. And so I saw my alkalinity going up as I was increasing my nitrate dosing. And I thought, oh, okay, I need to turn down my two-part dosing because I use ATI elements one and two. Element two is calcium. So I turned them both down equally because that's how I've always done it for the last seven years. And that resulted in my calcium getting lower and lower and lower and lower as my alkalinity, even though my alkalinity was stable. Okay. And so I, then I started to have some, you know, bad things happen in the tank. And I noticed something was wrong. Everything started to look bad. And then I tested my calcium and my calcium was about 320 and had been so likely for a month or more. And uh, because of me not knowing that I was increasing my alkalinity uh, with a nitrate dosing, And so um, what that resulted in is an STN and RTN outbreak in my acros. And uh, this was around the time that you had Chris Meckley on, I think, Keith, and you talked about how you would use oxalonic acid as a treatment in your tank. And I thought, hey, that sounds like an exactly timely thing for me to try out in my tank because of what I'm dealing with, because I have all this STN issues with my ACROS. And so um, I tried it out, and um, you can see my pre and post data there where look at my pre Look at that, look at that profile. There's not even any Pelagibacteraceae in there at all. It's almost all rotobacteraceae. Again, rotobacteraceae are the detritus bacteria that the SETLD bacteria are part of, the Shemia, and so on. Okay. Just completely dominating that community. At the same time, then Eli and I did the same swab test with a Millet with a Millie. So we did a, a milli that was RTNing and a millie that was not as a, as a negative control. And we found ArcoBacter in the material that was uh, on the RTNA milly, not on the, um, the healthy milly, and also in the water. And so that was the first evidence then that ArcoBacter is linked to tissue necrosis in Acropora, which was an interesting finally, it was associated with death of acros in my tank. Um, and so you can see the impact of the treatment of the oxalinic acid. Uh, the last, the last graph there, the pink band comes back. That's the AC band coming back, and um, the rotobacter AC band shrinks. Okay, and the balance score went went up quite a bit. And so those are the those are the um, are those were the uh, results of that treatment but neither of those treatments touched the cyanobacteria. So I still am dealing with this issue with cyanobacteria, even though everything else is doing relatively well.
3: That's, and that's the again, of you know, all
1: also this time, you know, nitrate and phosphate aren't changing. Nothing is changing except what I'm measuring with my aqua biomics tests, right? And Eli thinks, we talk about this, Eli thinks that, hey, this rotobacteraceae shift indicates that you've got accumulation of nutrients in your sand bed. Um, you're seeing signs of old tank syndrome. There might be a lot of dissolved organic carbon, dissolved nitrate, and things in your system. And so I sent yeah. you the Triton Endoc test. You know, have you heard of the Endoc test, Keith? I
0: have, have not. Have you done? No, I haven't.
1: So it measures dissolved nitrogen, carbon, and phosphate and, and phosphorus in your tank. Things that you can't measure with your normal test kits. And sure enough, I got my Triton results back, and I had really high levels of dissolved organic carbon in the tank oh, cool. um, and nitrogen. I,
0: I want to address some comments by John Wright, and you know these are fair comments. You know, one of the comments is this is like Formula One racing compared with loving the car we drive. How many hobbyists will delve into uh, this stuff this far? And I mean, listen, I, I'm the first one to admit that uh, you know when I first started reef keeping, I was, I am an old, I consider myself an old school reef keeper. So I'm, I, uh, I am not one to dig into the minutia of a lot of data and, and act on that data all the time. You know, that, um, so I I think that's my philosophy these days is that if if this is information, right. And it's, and it's (coughs) where we're, we're information, we're in a very um, information-gathering type of hobby. There's there's a lot of new information out there, like Eli Service. There's ICP testing, yeah. where you've got all these different elements. Um, you know, when I get ICP test, am I acting on, uh, you know, a deficient or a uh, you know a, a element that's way too high? You know, maybe I'll wait a couple of uh, months or different tests before I act on that data. So I, I think it's it's great to have the information. I, I, I think that you can't overreact to the information. But in, in terms of the uh the aquabiomics data and digging into the, the different types of bacteria that you have in your system, yeah, that that can be um a very complex thing to try to figure out in terms of how to uh <laughs> What was that? Sorry. Sorry. <laughs> that wasn't me, but uh uh so I, I guess what i'm trying to say is that um i understand the comment that uh too, in, too much information can, can be a bad thing but i also think that um you don't have to act on that information it's good intelligence to gather to have and if you have a case where you've got a lot of rtn and stn and you do an alcohol test and it shows that you've got coral pathogens then you know hey i think it's pretty reasonable to say that maybe you need to do something about that based on that information but if you've got certain ratios of the, uh, you know, the pink band is, is uh, much greater on the, uh, the normative database versus what you have in your tank, um, you know, I, I don't guys, what do you think about that? I'm kind of rambling here.
3: So yeah. just a couple I mean, things.
1: Yeah, go ahead. So first thing, I have, I have a PhD in zoology, okay? This is what I do. This, I collect data like this. Right. I'm also a science educator. I want to learn something from my tank. I want to help others i want to I want to learn something about what an optical opti- optimal community looks like, how it changes over time, and what we can do about it. I don't assume that everybody is going to collect data like I am on their tank. What I'm doing is I'm trying to explain um, how I'm learning things about the ship that I can help um, I can help other reefers with. and I'm not reacting quickly, right so, this shift is over a year, right? This shift, the Rotobacter AC is happening over a year it's leading up to what I'll, I'll talk about in a minute, some things that I'm going to do. so sorry, go ahead, Eli.
2: yeah, I mean I, I, think, I think it is a fair it is a fair criticism, frankly, the three of us are kind of reef keeping geeks, aren't we? I mean we, maybe not everybody who just wants Nemo in their living room is is going to spend as much time on water chemistry as, as you know, people in this audience do. Um, but there are a lot of very simple questions we can ask with these tests. I, I think you don't have to be going down the very, very deep reef ecology world to make use of this. A couple of simple questions. One, do I have a normal microbial community or a completely weird microbial community? Um, this is actually a pretty relevant question. I mean, something went wrong in my tank and I want to know, was this caused by like chemistry or temperature or lighting or overfeeding? Or, you know, there's a lot of things that can go wrong. Well, this is, this is an invisible thing that could be going wrong in your tank that you can ask that simple question. Is it normal or is it completely weird? Um, two, presence or absence of a pathogen. Keith, I think you mentioned this. Like this is, this is not too far down the rabbit hole, right? you found a pathogen or you did not find a pathogen, that's a pretty clear course. Well, there are options in both choices, in both cases, but um, it's a pretty clear, clearly actionable piece of information that that you can do something with. So, I mean, I think the technology can do really cool things like what you guys are doing with these replicated oxalinic acid experiments. But I think reef keepers who do that are not the only ones who could benefit from the service. Perhaps other reef keepers might want to take just once a year. Take once a year and just see how how is the reef tank doing. And
0: you know, every test that's done in the reef keeping community is going to help other reef keepers, because then you're collecting normative data. You're collecting data. And and the more data that uh, gets collected, the more um, actionable, reliable that data can be. So even if you don't act on the data that you're getting from ELI service or ICP tests or what have you, it's just more data out there that's being uh, aggregated and uh there could be something you know we could we could potentially learn from that stuff so i think that's
2: absolutely And, and a great case in point is the one we've spent so much time talking about today the Pelagibacteraceae. i don't run any uv tanks i haven't done any experiments with uv so if it was just me doing this stuff we would still not know that this group was so strongly impacted by uv uh but because you all are doing these experiments by some of you running a tank one way and some another way that came into the database and now that's information that i send back out to every client you know if you come back um with a low a low level i'm going to feed you that information that we've learned from the other clients so just saying that it's a tangible example of exactly what you're talking about Keith that we learned from all of your uh experiments.
0: Yep. Um we got a couple more questions in the chat, but Andy, I don't want to like um derail your uh... <laughs>
1: well let me <clears throat> excuse me. Let me let me just say one one thing and then we can go to the questions. So what do I do about this shift uh that yeah. looks like it's potentially a sign of old tank syndrome. So my Triton Endoc test suggests that I do massive water changes to reduce the dissolved organic carbon. Okay. My philosophy has been to not rely on those kinds of things as much as I can because I see the future of reef keeping is not having access to lots of cheap water especially out west right we're going through lots of lots of issues with water availability and so I want to see if I can if I can um, shift the balance back to where it was in the, in the golden age uh, by using some probiotics and so um, someone at our local forum that the Pacific Northwest Marine Aquarium Society um, has been keeping uh, several cultures of purple non-sulfur bacteria. And uh, many of you have probably heard of this because these are, these are also sold by um, Hydrospace LLC, right? And they're very um, versatile microbes that um, uh, they're used in, in shrimp farming in Thailand as a way to break down detritus and as a way to feed larval invertebrates. And so, and this, uh, this friend of mine from our forum has been using um, these bacteria to reduce uh, detritus and phosphate and nitrate in, uh, in several tanks. And I'm gonna, and he gave me some cultures and I'm gonna try it. I've started dosing already and I'm gonna see, you know, is there something that, some way that I can um, deal with this from the microbial side of things? Um, before I do massive water changes and, and, and pull the Steve Weast and remove my sand bed,
0: <laughs> and a reef bum who did that as well. Um, <laughs> so, go ahead, Eli. Andy,
2: I not I, I didn't remember that you had gotten those Triton results back, this, uh DOC DSC yeah. results. That's really cool. I was just reviewing there. There is good data showing that coral reef rhodobacteraceae. The ones the specific ones that live on coral reefs are uh enriched or they're they're associated with higher dic and doc levels in nature so just to say that um exactly the same group we're talking about is associated with high doc on coral reefs um and you've just told me you have high doc in your tank so all of this is coming together i have to say i have three times
1: Three times the recommended high range value, oh, wow.
2: according to Triton. Wow. Yeah. So this is really coming to say, together to say, it is a, a nutrient mediated shift in your net, your microbial and product. not and not measurable with normal tests, right? Yeah. So that's the thing. Yeah. It's, it's it's a new parameter. Right. It's not it's not nitrate levels creeping up over time. It's, you guys yeah. are blowing my
0: levels. mind. Um, so champion lighting and supply has a question that, that, uh, the three of us were talking about before the live stream. And that's, uh, when Paletta was on the show recently, he mentioned getting ArcoBacter, which he believed came from frozen food. Has any testing been done on foods as a source of bacteria? So is that possible? Can bacteria come in via bad bacteria come in via frozen
2: food? All right. So bacteria, definitely bacterial genetic material, bacterial DNA definitely comes through in frozen foods of various types. I don't have any specific data, but there's lots of literature on uh, um, Vibrio in uh, brine shrimp preparations. The the question, of course, is are they viable, right? So is is it a viable bacterium that's made it through in that frozen piece of food, and then it thaws in your tank and and grows? I read some evidence that some Archobacter can live up to a week in f- freezing conditions. You know, freeze them in a block of ice, put them in the freezer for a week. Some of them will survive. This is for some types of archibacter. I'm not sure if they're even closely related. Um, point is to say that theoretically, I can imagine a bacterium coming through in the food source. I am skeptical that they can make it through in enough numbers and viable enough to establish a population, but that's a hand-waving skepticism. I think what we need to do is exactly what the, the listener that asked the question suggested, that is, let's test the food. So we find dozens of different types of Archibacter in aquarium samples. These are defined by their different DNA sequences. So if you come back and tell me, well, I have this archibacter sequence in my food and I have this different archibacter sequence in my tank, it didn't come there from your food. But right? it's a clear diagnosis that we can, we can do. So I, I think that should be the next step to answer that question.
3: Yeah.
0: Um, preventative measure, uh, until we learn more about that, would uh, putting frozen food in a microwave potentially help prevent that from happening, bringing in archibacter?
2: I mean, yeah, you know, high temperatures do a good job at killing bacteria. There's always the weird ones that can survive unusually high temperatures. Um, we use autoclaves in a research context for this, which is like a pressure cooker. I mean, it's out of the reach of what a hobbyist is going to want to do. Boiling is not a bad idea. I mean, I'll, I'll tell you, I've used that in a lot of contexts for sterilizing media when it doesn't have to be perfectly sterile Yeah, Boiling is a, is a a reasonable strategy. Um, I'm going to say I'm pretty skeptical. This is the source of a lot of disease in the hobby. But let's collect some data and prove me wrong. It's it's certainly possible. Um, Seems to me there's a lot a lot of other things that are a lot more likely.
3: Yeah, yeah, that, that <laughs> yeah. makes sense. There's a lot of
2: other things you're putting in your tank. Yeah. that you know, have bacteria in them like corals and fish yeah. and snails.
0: Yep. Yep. Uh, here's a good question from Clearwater Scrubbers. Have you done testing to determine if the bacteria change depending on the filtration used in the tank, i.e., refugium versus traditional macros versus algae scrubbers versus carbon dosing versus mechanical filtration? So, can the type of um, nutrient export that you do impact the microbiome?
2: Yeah, yeah. I've I've looked at some of those questions um, not recently, but you know our database grows over time and in theory, every day I could answer questions that I couldn't answer yesterday, but I don't actually look at it every day, right? Um, At one point, I went through and asked some of those questions. Um, We did see some associations with macroalgal refugium. I believe the flavobacteraceae were um, uh, increased in those those groups, uh, in those tanks. Um, A lot of the other filtration types that you're talking about there, unfortunately, I don't have the information, you know, I I only ask a certain set of questions to our clients um, just to keep the questionnaire short enough. And so I haven't asked them about every single item on that list. Uh, Mechanical filtration, that's one that I haven't addressed. I suspect that filter socks have a big impact. Um, I know there's a wide range. Some people don't do socks, some people always use socks. I suspect that has a big impact and I, I don't have the data on that either. Same Depends reason, how yeah.
1: often you change them, Eli. If
2: yeah, you have yeah, yeah. just let them build up yeah. stuff
1: in them and get dirty and dirty and dirty. That it's probably different than if you change them every every week like uh, like Keith does.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Twice a week
0: now. Yeah, twice a week. <laughs> well, the fine, the, fine uh, the higher micron socks get clogged up on me now. So, um, yeah, I got I to gotta change them out like every, uh, every uh, few days. Amanda Meckley has a funny uh, comment. How many studies can be done from this conversation alone? Question mark. Endless. Laugh out loud.
2: Yeah, yep. there's there are. Yeah, I missed, I missed my days in the university when I could grab a few undergraduates who are interested and say, hey, do an experiment right up on some little thing you know, now I have just me. So we have these conversations. And then I say, well, I I don't have time to do all those experiments or write up all those studies.
0: So, so guys, we're, uh, we're pushing um, these two hours there on the uh, on the stream. Did, did we miss anything? I know um, there's so much to cover and so many questions that people have. And, and um, I know that um, Eli, they could, they could certainly reach out to you if if they have any questions about their services. And Andy, what's what's the best way if people have any questions for you um, to get a hold of you? you're on social media, right?
1: Yeah, they can. <clears throat> excuse me. They can either uh, find me on uh, Humblefish, or they can uh, find me on Facebook, or um, at the PNWMAS um, is our our local forum. I'll put in a plug for our local forum. Support your local uh, reef club. So our club is the Pacific Northwest Marine Aquarium Society. We're fortunate in the greater Portland area to have a really great uh, group of hobbyists. I'm I'm going to be the president of it this coming year. Cool, congratulations! And, uh, so sure. um, you can also find me on the PNWMAS forum.
0: Cool. Well, this has been a, a fascinating uh, discussion, guys. I really appreciate you uh, taking the time out to uh, to join us, and would would love to um, have you guys back on to uh, continue the conversation. Can you talk about
1: the chemically
2: results, then.
0: Yes. Absolutely. That's
2: right. Let's finish that experiment. Yeah. Yeah. Back for that. That
0: sounds great. All right, guys. Well, listen, thanks again so much. And I also oh, want to um, awesome. thank the uh, sponsors of the live stream, Bulk Reef Supply and Ecotech Marine for, um, for sponsoring the show and supporting the show. And also want to thank all you folks out there for tuning in. And I also want to give a big thank you to Paul, who is the moderator, as well as the president of the Boston Reefers Society. Uh, Andy, you beat me to it, but please join and support your local reefing clubs. They are so... So important to this hobby. Um, I also want to let you folks know that all episodes of Wrapping with the are available as podcasts on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, and Amazon. My next Wrapping with Reef live stream will be next week, but it's going to be Tuesday, not Thursday. It's going to be Tuesday. Time, uh, day change, uh, 7 p.m. Eastern Standard Time with Greg Carroll. Had him on uh, a few times, so that, that'll be another uh, great show. If you want to check out the full upcoming schedule of guests, please visit
3: reefbump.com under the YouTube section. So until next time, be safe and be well, and later.